The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. This is from the Blue Cliff Record, Case 50. Yunmen's Every Adam Samadhi, the pointer. Passing beyond stages, absolutely transcending expedient means, mind to mind in mutual accord, each phrase harmonizing with the other. If you haven't entered the gate of great liberation and attained great liberty of action, how can you measure the Buddhas and ancestors or be a mirror and guide for the essential vehicle? But say, when taking charge of a situation directly, whether going with or going against, whether vertically or horizontally, how will you be able to speak a phrase to express yourself? The test, I cite this old case. Listen. A monastic asked Master Yunmen, what is every Adam Samadhi? Yunmen said, food in the bowl, water in the bucket. The verse. Food in the bowl, water in the bucket. The talkative teacher can hardly open his mouth. Northern dipper, southern star, their position are not different. White foamy waves flooding the skies arise on level ground. Trying or not trying, stopping or not stopping. Each and every one is a rich person's child with no britches. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Yunmen had the, one of the characteristics of Master Yunmen's teaching style. He was a very important Chinese master in the Chan tradition. Is his um, use of very short phrases, a word, a teaching that would, it said, cut off the myriad streams, sort of short circuit our intellectual attempts to rationalize and intellectualize that it would encompass heaven and earth. In other words, his teaching would include everything. And it would follow the waves. It would always be in, in uh, sort of appropriate to the student, skillful. Other translations of that question, what is every atom samadhi? What is each and every particle samadhi? What is the absolute concentration which comprehends every single particle of dust? Samadhi, of course, is one of the Eightfold Path, important aspect of the Eightfold Path, <clears throat> is often um, translated as concentration, but it is much more than that. It has a depth and breadth of meaning within this meditation tradition. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that, about meditation. Our being in the so-called meditation school of Buddhism, <clears throat> Zen, transliteration of Chan, transliteration of Jhana, which is often referred to as meditation. It's the basis of our practice. It's the intimate and revolutionary act of turning the light around that has been transmitted down to us over the many centuries. And within the Buddhist teaching and within Buddhist meditation, because meditation is a word that can mean I don't know, I guess in whatever you want it to mean, right? It's pretty ubiquitous these days, which in many ways is a good thing. 
but it also means that what it means can be very pliable or vague. And in Buddhism, it really means very particular things. So when we practice zazen or meditation within Buddha Dharma, that means certain things are present in what we're doing that make it Buddha Dharma. And so the Buddha said that there is the aspect of calming the mind, which is oftentimes associated with samadhi, and then there is insight, prajna, realization. And that those two elements work together. And there are some practices that are very focused on just developing concentration. When a student begins practicing the breath, that's pretty much what they're doing, is developing concentration, mindfulness, and then strengthening that into concentration. And then at different or later times in in their training, then the elements of zazen that incorporate insight, developing understanding, prajna, begin to be brought in. Ultimately, those two really need to be merged because they're really functioning together. So all of this is another way of saying, well, what is zazen, actually? We do quite a bit of it, (laughs) right? Monastics, if you're in residence for a year, three months of your life, of every year, are going to be in session. That's a lot of sitting. Every day on schedule, we do several hours of sitting, at least. And so... What is it? Bodhidharma said it's the most essential practice. It includes every other practice. He described it as beholding the mind. Beholding the mind. In the Heart Sutra, we chant that Avalokiteshvara doing deep prajnaparamita. Zazen. Clearly saw emptiness of the five conditions of the skandhas and was liberated from misfortune and pain. Chinese master Dao Wei said, while quiet, you experience bliss, but amidst chaos, but against amidst clamor, you experience suffering. If you want to transcend bliss and suffering, don't arouse your mind to keep the mind still, and don't use your mind to forget outward concerns. Throughout the day, let go and let yourself be vast and expansive. When old habits arise, don't repress them. Just go right to, does a dog have but a nature? He was a teacher of the koans, and so he's invoking the koan mu. Huenung said, the samadhi of oneness is straightforward mind at all times, sitting, standing, walking, lying down. If the mind does not abide in things, then the way moves freely. Vimalakirti in the Vimalakirti Sutra said, sit in samadhi so that you manifest all ordinary behavior, but without forsaking liberation so that your mind neither settles within nor moves towards externals. Dogen said, think of not thinking. Not thinking? What kind of thinking is that? Non-thinking. This is the essential art of zazen. The zazen I speak of is not meditation practice. It is simply the dharma gate of joyful ease, the practice realization of totally culminated enlightenment. So what, did that clarify everything? So what is meditation, zazen, samadhi, and prajna? Dogen also spoke of zazen as shobogenzo, the treasury of the true dharma I. And one of the things that's kind of interesting about this meditation school of Buddhism is the relative scarcity of meditation instruction 
that has come down to us through the records. Why would that be? Has it just not been translated? Is it was it not considered was it considered so sort of self-evident, so ubiquitous that it wasn't important to record it? Or is there something else going on? What happens when we receive necessarily instruction in Zazen? Do this with your body, do this with your mind. Those instructions, those very rather clear descriptions of what to do that are really offered as a gateway, as an entry, not to define something, but to discover something that is undefinable. What is Zazen? What is Samadhi? Yunmen says, food in the bowl, water in the bucket. We can speak of different Zazen practices. It's breath, koan, shikantaza, visualizations, mantras. Buddhism has been developing, and we might say perfecting, the experience, the practice of Zazen for over 2,500 years. That's a long time to be focused on a, a very essential spiritual practice. And so we are the recipients of that, of the, that vast wisdom that has come down to us, not through theories and ideas, but through people's actual lived and meditative experience. And so we can speak of different practices, of methods and techniques, but Zazen can't be defined. That's what those teachers are basically pointing to. That's why in the Heart Sutra we essentially chant all, that, all the ways in which we would define and try and take that away. No, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. Not as a negation, but as an invitation into discovering what it is beyond any definition. As it says in the pointer, beyond stages, transcending skillful means, mind-to-mind in accord, each phrase harmonizing. Then, how do we take charge of the situation without going with or against? How do we live freely? And so we speak of mind training, of returning to your original mind, the mind you had before you were born, before your parents were born, the mind that is free of any words and ideas. What is the nature of mind? That's just a different way of asking, what is Azim? So I've been, I've read this book recently called The Wandering Mind. I've shared a little bit about it with the monastics in our weekly study by a historian named uh, Jamie Kreiner. She teaches down in University of Georgia, an alma mater. Well, I was there for a year. I don't know if that qualifies as an alma mater, but um, <laughs> it got my attention. And the interesting thing about it is, to me, was that she's talking about the early development of the Christian monastic form in the years 300 to 900, from Western Europe to Qatar, so this vast expanse of land territory where people, and she uses the word monks to include all genders, where people were trying to figure out what is a monk, what is a monastery, and more essentially, what is the life of a monk? What is the practice of a monk? 
And she says one of the main goals that defined their practice was to connect their minds to God and achieve an unshakable state of attention to then attain panoramic vistas of the universe that transcended time and space, a clear-sighted calm above the chaos. And what was interesting to me was, you know, if we think of the Buddha, the Buddha, before Buddhism, before teachings, he was just a person on the path. He was a, on, he was a person practicing. He was a person searching. There wasn't a path yet. He was figuring that out. So when he came to start teaching, there was his first teaching included the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. But he, 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 he brought the path that he had been on. So he did a lot to help him help us to know, well, what should we be doing? Which included what we don't have to do. So he recognized that living a life of complete indulgence, that's not ultimately satisfying. To live a life of complete abstinence or asceticism, that also is not ultimately liberating. And so we're really fortunate in the sense that as he began teaching, he already had a pretty good sense of what the path was and a very clear sense of what he had been seeking and that he had discovered the, the, the sort of the resolution of his seeking in his enlightenment. And so he brought all of that to his very first teachings. So to think of that, and this is not a critique, and she's just drawing on, you know, the records of monks that, that recorded their thoughts and their experiences. So it's in no way inclusive, and this is not an exhaustive um, presentation by any means, but that just to think about the differences in different traditions. And like, if you were just out there on your own, right, seeking something, union with God or liberation, what would you do? Right? If you were living with other people, how would you live? It hasn't been established yet. And so it's interesting, she talks about, well, what should we wear? What should we eat? What, which, how should we deal with distractions? Right? How should we deal with, she talks about the, when the written word became more easily available. And so uh, teachings and, and, and recorded um, written you know, biblical passages and so on were more available. Was that actually a good thing? It's sort of maybe analogous to, you know, is the internet a good thing? (laughs) And so they were trying to figure it out. That's what was, has been so interesting to me. And then how, what would their practices be, right? If they wanted to connect with God in some transcendent way, what would they do? What would they do with their mind? It was clear to them that they needed to be doing something with their mind, that they called it prayer. But what, what did they do? How did they deal with their own distraction? The Wandering Mind is the title of her book. How did they develop their concentration? What did they do with their emotions? The Buddha was not seeking God, was not seeking union. He was seeking liberation from suffering from the human experience, the universal human experience. And what's it, one of the things that was interesting, as I was reflecting on it later, was there was no mention of posture. 
which just means there was no mention of posture, nothing more than that. But to think about how important that is within our own meditative tradition. When we give beginning instruction, that's the, that's the first thing we start talking about, is your posture. What do you do with your body? And to appreciate the, the body of wisdom that has come down from this yogic tradition, that has understood the intimate, the incredibly important role that the body plays in meditating, in studying the mind, because it's non-dual. And so Dogen, in his Fasco Fukanzazegi, which was the first teaching he offered when he came back from China, is really the universal recommendations for Zazen. It was really a very clear and explicit teaching of meditation. As you're at your sitting place, spread out a thick mat and put a cushion on it. Sit in the full lotus or the half lotus. Tie your robes loosely, arrange them neatly. Place your right hand on your left leg, and so on. He goes through the whole basic instruction in Zazen, and how important that is. And to appreciate the simplicity of the posture, it's not a complicated thing, but that doesn't mean it's an easy thing, right? Because we bring our whole life in stress and tension and restlessness and distractedness and relationship with and distance from the body to that posture. And so it is both, in one sense, very simple. It's also very profound. It's very profound. We shouldn't underestimate or, or you know, sort of be casual or glib about the importance of the posture, that the body is a mountain. You're assuming the posture of a mountain, a sacred form. You're assuming the, the, the posture of a Buddha, an enlightened being that is alive, that is non-hindering? How do we make peace with all of the bodies of the world? Well, why don't you start with the one at home? And to cultivate that profound state of ease that Dogen refers to, joyful ease, easeful joy, at the same time that it's vibrant and alive, awake, because when we become easeful, we very often get sleepy. We get dull. We're sort of seduced by that ease. And it ceases to be ease. It's not the ease that Dogen is talking about. It's not the ease that we're striving for. On the other hand, when we become very vibrant and awake and lucid and sharp, we tend to get very tight and constricted, which is not the wakefulness that we're seeking. And to appreciate how the body is sort of a universe of energy, of vital energies, that every thought, every sensation, every emotion, every memory is riding within, is traveling within, is arriving through energy. Right? It has a kind, that's what gets our attention. It has a force. If it doesn't come into our attention, the, in a sense, the threshold of its energy is not sufficient for us to notice. And that be, may be because it's so slight, it may be because we're so dulled to it. And so the posture becomes this open conduit for the moving of these vital energies. And central to all of that is key itself, is the vital life force. And so it takes a little bit of time <laughs> to develop that 
sort of exquisite dynamic balance or um, unity that the posture is inviting us into. So in this text, she talks about the different kinds of prayer that they were exploring and something that the monks called pure prayer. And this, again, is not coming from like a comprehensive agreement of what all of these different monks and all these different countries and landscapes were, but she's just drawing on different writings and teachings that they were leaving behind. So this pure prayer defined it. And she said that they spoke of this as not being a prayer for beginners, but it was a practice for those who had experience. That they tended to see it as the exclusive preserve of monks who retreated from communal living to spend weeks or even years in solitude, because only the solitaries who had already learned to monitor and discipline themselves in the more rudimentary domains of monastic practices were suited for the most advanced exercise. And that's a fairly commonly held opinion in Buddhism as well, except as it came to the West, where everybody, most, so many people who were encountering Buddhism wanted to be meditators, wanted to be meditating, right, and not have to leave their lives, their busy lives in order to do that. And that in that practice of pure prayer, there was getting to the point of speaking to God off book. Kind of like that. Off book. What does that mean? Sort of off script. Beyond the rule. Beyond what you've been told. It's discovering God, perhaps, for the monks. It's discovering the Dharma, discovering Zazen, discovering your mind, discovering the nature of the self. It has to be off book. And yet, she said, but that was not supposed to be just whatever comes into your head. It doesn't mean just doing whatever you want. Prayer improved the more a monk worked at her other forms of physical, social study and mental training. And so, of course, for us, that means that Zazen and effectively everything we're doing is embedded within the whole of the path. It's one of the criticisms of the mindfulness movement is that it's taking one very important aspect of Buddhist practice that is a very important aspect, but it's just one aspect. And it's taking it out of that whole context, which means it's not the same. It's different. It's, in a sense, turning it into a different kind of practice, which can still have value, but it's not, in a sense, embedded in its original intention of being within a whole life practice and effort and view and morality and sangha. And she says, as, as they went on, then they would gradually pull away from their books the more they internalized the teachings, let's say. Right? And that's also true. That It's really important that we be studying the Dharma because otherwise we're just flying. right? We're flying blind. Or we're flying according to our own dictates. So that we're constantly going back to this spring of Dharma teachings and developing our understanding. And then when we go to the cushion... In a sense, you go off book 
in the sense that you're not sitting there thinking about the teachings, thinking about the instruction, except perhaps in moments where you wander, get lost a little bit, and then you remember what it is the practice is based in the teachings. And so that the, the, the practice that we're doing is constantly being aligned with, informed by, verified what the, te- the path that has been given to us through all of these centuries of practice and testing. But it's important that, that we, we do that because otherwise we can rely on those teachings too heavily. As essential as they are, if they become too important, we might stop sitting. Or we might find ourselves studying extensively and sitting a little bit, right? Which is fine if that's what you want to do, right? But in terms of being grounded in a meditative practice and wanting that to be what opens the door, what opens the gate of liberation. I mean, it may not be true, but I would think that every, all of us who come to practice at some level no longer believe that we can truly free ourselves purely intellectually, just through information. That doesn't mean we don't still believe in it and revert back to that constantly. But then on some level, there's a sense that that's not, that's not enough. And then she also talked about, or the monks that she was reporting on talked about how important it is to have your feet fixed on the ground while your mind strolls through the stars in the vault of heaven. Not exactly how we might describe it, but very much the spirit. Padmasambhava said, though the view, your view should be as vast as the sky, let your conduct, your behavior be as fine as flower. And a commentary on that says, don't confuse these two. When training in the view, which is sort of the, the understanding, the, the vision, the, um, the understanding of the nature of things, when training the view, you can be unbiased and impartial and vast, immense and unlimited. That's the nature of your mind. That's how ultimately we're, we're developing our zazen and our being. But the commentary says, but your behavior, on the other hand, should be careful and attentive in discriminating what is beneficial and what is not. What is good and what is not good. You can combine or merge these two, but don't get them mixed up. This is very important. View like the sky means that nothing is held onto in any way whatsoever. Non-abiding. You are not stuck anywhere at all. In other words, there is no discrimination as to what to accept and what to reject. No line is drawn separating one thing from the other. That's the basis, the nature of our mind. That's what Zazen ultimately is bringing us to, is that experience. And that experience only comes when you stop trying. The very basis of that experience is being described. You cannot create. Because ultimately that would be accepting or rejecting. However, the practice of knowing what to accept and knowing what to reject brings us to that place where that dropping away of effort is possible. And why is that important? Because in that experience, which you are not creating, 
you experience your basic state. And that basic state is free. There is no suffering, no cause of suffering, no extinguishing, no path. There is no old age and death, no end to old age and death. And as you emerge from that state into the world of things, let your conduct be as fine as barley flour. This means there is good and evil. We do need to differentiate between the two to know the difference, to give up our negative actions and practice the Dharma. In our behavior, in our conduct, it is necessary to accept and reject, to make good choices. But to do that without deceiving ourselves, being deceived, that there are absolutes. Because as soon as things become absolute, there will be attachment. There will be separation. And so in this, it's really important to understand that just having no thought doesn't mean that the mind is clear. Being aware is not necessarily mindfulness. It must be grounded in the precepts, in morality, in non-harming. And there's more to mindfulness than just being aware. There's attention, there's knowing where you are. Being in direct experiential contact with your inner and outer world. Knowing when something arises, whether it's something to strengthen and cultivate or whether it's something to let drop away. Mindfulness is very profound. Deep concentration, a state of deep concentration, is not necessarily samadhi. So someone who forces himself into a state of not thinking is not in a state of samadhi. They're just in a forced state of not thinking. Samadhi is pliant and is a direct result is coming out of, from our mindfulness, which means even though there's a point at which the sense of right and wrong drop away, there is no more sense of, of good and evil. There is no sense of practicing. But we have arrived at that place through the Eightfold Path, through mindfulness, through living well and being careful about our actions. And so samadhi enters, we enter samadhi through compassion. And in a sense, because of compassion. You know, so the idea that we can be very diligent and sincere and faithful on the cushion and then be a hell being off the cushion, that's just a fantasy. And not a good one. That's the power of the path. It's a whole thing. It's completely integrated. It's all working together. That's why this is important. All together. She quotes monastics, monks who said that in this, in this strengthening of this awareness, self-awareness, and that what the doors that begin to open, what we begin to experience when the distractedness falls away. And see, this is what we can't imagine. I mean, we can imagine it, but we won't imagine it as it is. So we can imagine, we can see our, our you know, cluttered, distracted mind, and we can imagine what, what it would be like if the mind was perfectly still. But we're just fantasizing, right? And that may help to motivate us, but we should understand that that's not what the actual experience is. 
And that the experience, when the mind becomes calm, mindful, when it develops into concentration, and that samadhi, think of samadhi as a, as a, a, a continuum. It's not like you're in or out. It's on or off. There's not even complete agreement within, amongst Buddhist teachers of the sort of necessary factors of samadhi. Does samadhi mean that you're not having thought? Not necessarily. Does it mean that you're focused on one point? No. Could be, but not necessarily. So samadhi itself does not have a fixed form, and yet it's, it's very clear how, what it, how it's understood. And so the, the sense that was, was being seen was that, as one, as one monk said, <clears throat> what kind of person explores celestial phenomena while knowing nothing of terrestrial ones? In other words, if we want to look into the eye of the universe, we need to have our feet on the ground. Right? And this is a, a, a base, could be a trap for practices, is to deny or ignore the importance of the world and people and situations because we're just wanting to dance amongst the stars, right? We're just wanting to be free and unhindered in the vast expanses, unlimited view, as broad as the sky. That's where the action is, right? And that's why practice is always holding both sides. That's why the teachings of the two truths, relative and absolute, is so important. That's constantly being, not just reaffirmed in the teachings, but lived. Right? So if you're here in training, you can't spend the whole time sitting on that cushion. That's not allowed. You have to get up. You have to walk. You have to go wash some dishes. You have to show up for work. You have to be on time. You have to care about the people you're practicing with. You have to clean up your house. Right? We could also say, what kind of person explores terrestrial phenomena while knowing nothing of celestial ones? Right? Which is kind of samsara. Only being concerned with things that I can see and touch and want, accept or reject, while having no idea no sense that there's anything more than that. They also recognize, she talks about how, unfortunately, this prayer, these more developed forms of prayer were only temporary. Monks' minds would invariably go back, tottering, falling, slipping, collapsing, being led away. This was part of the landscape of being human. They also took it as a sign that they needed a divine boost, a gesture they called grace, to experience those ecstatic moments at all. And of course, this is all based within a, you know, a tradition which is very importantly and necessarily placing God in the relationship with God and, and experiencing union with God at the center. Right? Buddhism had a different question he was asking. He was on a different path which has lots of similarities, but it's a different question. But that sense that any experience, any meditative experience, is temporary. That's why samadhi itself, as powerful as it is, and transformative, 
you know, we we experience a transformation within ourselves, within the body, within the mind, with emotions, with thoughts, in the way we respond to things that are arising, inwardly and outwardly. I mean, anybody who's, pra- who's practiced, hopefully, you have had that experience. If not, just stay with it. <laughs> and that's very powerful and very affirming and encouraging. But you also know, if you've had that experience, you can't keep it. It's impermanent. That's its nature. It's not a problem. That doesn't mean anything is wrong. That's the nature of every experience. That's why the Buddha, who had developed, experienced these very, very deep states within his meditation, knew that that was not yet liberation, that he was not yet liberated, because it was dependent upon his meditation on that particular state of mind, or those states of mind that he was experiencing, that were a result of his meditation. And he had the genius, in my estimation, to know that that was not ultimately what he was seeking, because I'm guessing he saw how that would shift and fade. He knew that he had to have... He had to experience some fundamental truth, we call it an ultimate truth, that is not the result of any action. You didn't make it happen. Therefore, you don't have to keep making it happen. Right? Rather, it's a result of, in a sense, giving up that effort to produce something. But that effort is very difficult because we are so deeply trained to keep making something happen. And so it takes a lot of practice and consciousness and effort to get to that place of joyful ease, where the mind finally stops trying. And so they talk, she talks about how the monks recognize that the highest state of prayer is where you are no longer actually praying. Verbs do not make sense anymore. Where thoughts do not exist, how can one speak any longer of prayer or of anything else? And that sense of a falling away, of a sense of self. The very concept of bodiedness dissolves in this state. So did the monk's own bounded sense of self. The normal limitations on human beings disappeared becoming all mind or all intellect, all I, all living, all light, all perfect, all gods, small g. Monks who experienced this said they forgot themselves. Sounds kind of familiar. And I don't know what these monks directly experienced beyond what these words speak to. But having a moment of Losing self-awareness and forgetting the self does not mean that we have realized the self. Moments of losing self-consciousness, losing self-awareness, are not that uncommon. They can happen in deep states of meditation. They can happen when you're in the midst of a very deeply focused action, doing art, playing music, dancing, painting. An, An ordinary action. A deep state of concentration where you, you're no longer, you no longer have the sense of you are doing this. That drops away. And that is a sense of losing 
the sense of self in that moment, but that's not the same as realizing the self. And it doesn't mean that, that, that one is deficient, it's just to clarify, because that, that lack of bodiedness, too, is impermanent. Right? It's just an experience that's happening in that moment, but as a result of a certain coming together of certain conditions. And then it will change. To realize the self is empty is ultimately transformative because it's not dependent on something you're doing. That's why it's so important that it was Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva who was doing the Prajnaparamita, the Bodhisattva of compassion. Right? That's why she has, in, in this posture, the really she's got one foot on the ground and one foot at ease. She's completely grounded in the body of the mountain and she's ready to go. And they're not in conflict, both in one body both in one posture. And so we are, I feel, the incredibly fortunate recipients, right, inheritors of these teachings that for 2,500 years people have been meditating deeply, profoundly, and in, a, in that sense, clarifying it, testing it, right, learning it, adapting to it, and adapting it to their own circumstances. And then that kept getting passed down and passed down and passed down. And still, even though all of that is true, when you start, when we each start, it's kind of like, it's never happened before, right? You're kind of like the first one, right? Because for you, for me, every step is brand new. It's nice that we can look back and, and recognize, oh, there are all these other people. It's nice that we, I mean, not nice as, you know, putting it mildly, that we can turn to these teachings. But we also see that when we are the one who's actually meditating, that only goes so far. It goes exactly as far as it's supposed to. To get us to that place where now you take it. Within the Dharma, in a sense, you go beyond the Dharma. That's making it your own. It's not making something up, brand new, that nobody's ever done before, that you can sell. It's doing what has been done before a hundred million times, but never before for this one. And so that's why it takes a bit of courage, a whole bunch of trust and faith, perseverance. Nobody can learn, can develop this in a day or a weekend or a year Give it a lifetime. Right? See how far you can take it. That's how I think of it. I'd like in this lifetime to see how far I can go in this dharma. How much of this dharma I can encourage to reveal itself to me, that I can discover. Which means we have to constantly be willing to give up the idea 
of end or finiteness or limitation in the Dharma and ourselves. Which if you keep practicing, that will help because you keep going through those limitations. And so I'll end with some words of Dogen in his Fukunza Zengi. In general, in our world and others, in both India and China, all equally hold the Buddha seal. You hold the Buddha seal. While each lineage expresses it its own style, they are all simply devoted to sitting in resolute stability. Although they say that there are 10,000 distinctions and a thousand variations, they just wholeheartedly engage in Zazen. Why leave behind the seat of your own home to wander in vain through the dusty realms of other lands? If you make even one misstep, you'll stumble past what is right in front of you. You have gained the pivotal opportunity of a human form. Don't pass your days and nights in vain. You are taking care of the essential activity of the Buddha. Who would take wasteful delight in the spark from a flintstone? Besides, form and substance are like dew on the grass. The fortunes of life, like a dart of lightning, emptied out in an instant, vanish in a flash. Please, please, honored ones, honored followers of Zen, long accustomed to groping for the elephant, do not doubt the true dragon. Devote your energies to the way of direct pointing to the real. Revere the one who has gone beyond learning and is free from effort, the Buddha. Accord with the enlightenment of all the Buddhas. Succeed to the samadhi of all of the ancestors. Continue to live in such a way, and you will realize you are such a person, have always been such a person. Now the treasure store will open of itself, and you may enjoy it freely. (laughs) Isn't that nice? Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.